Hi, I'm Dalton. And I'm Kelvin. And welcome to the sixth episode of season eight of Fly on the Wall. We had a great conversation with our guest, CNN commentator MK Ham today, and we're so excited to share her thoughts with you. Before we introduce this week's guest, remember to follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And be sure to send us any messages at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Our guest this week is MK Ham, a former local news journalist turned presidential debate moderator. MK has done almost everything in the world of journalism. She is currently a CNN correspondent and a fellow with our very own Georgetown Institute of Politics and Public Service. Thank you, MK, for joining us on the podcast this week. Oh, thank you for having me. So for some people who might not be familiar with your background, what drew you into the world of journalism? Um, So I am a fourth generation newspaper journalist, actually. Um, In my my earlier career, I did newspapers. So my my great-grandfather started a newspaper in Georgia. Uh, My grandfather worked for him. And then my dad was a lifetime newspaper editor, so our career newspaper editor. So um, I've been sort of in that world my whole life. Um, and I think my first journalism job was that I, this is in a time before the internet and cell phones, everybody. Uh, I sat at the courthouse and watched them copy the totals for local elections onto a blackboard, which I then called my father on a landline and relayed to him. If I remember correctly, that's how we did that. Um, so that I could be part of the team for election night. Uh, so I was about 12 or 13 when I did that, I think for the first time. Um, so I kind of enjoyed the energy of the newsroom and, and hanging out, especially on those big news nights. And it must've rubbed off on me a little bit. Although I tried to rebel in college, I was like, I'm not going to do exactly what my dad does. That's crazy. I'm going to do something different and cool. Right. I'm going to, so I, I got a couple internships in book publishing, but, um, I found them not interesting. (laughs) Sorry to everybody who's in book publishing. I'm sure there are many exciting pursuits there. Uh, I did not find it enjoyable. Um, probably because I was in an academic press situation. Um, but so I just decided after I went left school, I was like, well, darn it, I guess I am going to do what my dad did. And I took a newspaper job right out of school. Now this is in the days when newspapers were still thriving and you could get a community newspaper job uh, right out of school, which was a fantastic job. And one of the things that is sad about our new media environment is that that job doesn't exist really anymore for young people because I was in about an eight to 10 person newsroom. So I got to lay out the paper. Um, I got to cover NASCAR and football and, um, middle school women's volleyball. That's a real, that's on my, on my resume, uh, murders, court cases, you know, all sorts of things, whatever came across your desk while you were there, you did. Um, so I think I got a taste of a lot of different kinds of journalism. They let me write op-eds, um, at that job. And then after about two years of doing that, I headed to DC and did more, more political work and kind of more political journalism, political writing, and sort of stumbled into TV. So here I am now. Coming from that journalism background, today we've seen uh, criticism of journalism on both sides to a certain degree. What merits and faults do you see in the growing hostility toward journalism? Yeah, so I think um, a lot of people in the media industry, um, I'm, I am both part of the media and a vociferous media critic at times. Um, And I think that that's actually incumbent upon us as part of the media. Um, One of the issues I think we have as an industry, obviously trust is an issue, right? That's, that is your currency as a newspaper, as a newscaster. Um, 
even if you're just tweeting, that is, that is what you should be dealing in is your, your own credibility. And I think in the, particularly in the Trump era, people get things mixed up, the cause and effect mixed up. Many people in media think people are losing trust in us because he's attacking us. And I'm saying, no, he's attacking you because people have already lost trust in us. And that's why the attacks work. That's not to say that they should be as loud and mean as they often are, right? <laughs> I think there's a way to critique media um, without going enemies of the people, right? Um, but there's a lot of it that the media comes by honestly. I mean, that, that, that they deserve the criticism. And I think more, um, a little more inward looking uh, criticism would be helpful for the industry, uh, even if sometimes it aligns with what Trump criticisms, criticisms are, we might be wrong. Like sometimes we're wrong, we get things wrong. Um, and I think admitting that uh, is actually the best way to rebuild uh, credibility. There are, there are studies and focus groups that show that if you take responsibility um, for mistakes that people will uh, forgive you and, and move on from that. Um, but I think particularly in political journalism, Sometimes we have issues with that. For instance, admitting that, I don't know, all of us were wrong in 2016, except for like three people. There were three people who were right, right? Um, and I think after that blow to the political journalism industry's credibility, everybody kind of put their suits on and went back out the next day and didn't say anything about it when they should have said we were wrong. Now there were, obviously there's some people, but I do think grappling with those mistakes even when they're honest or when their bias leads you the wrong way is really important to the industry. And I try to do it in a, in a loving way because I, I come from a line of ink stained wretches and I, I do, I, it's so important to the Republic. And I, I, there's this part of me that will always be a media person, but I'm like, help me help you. Let's do better as a group. You've mentioned your long history in the news. So what contrast have you seen through the different news environments that you've worked with? Yeah, I think the industry has changed quite a bit since I've been in it. Um, sometimes for the worse, sometimes for the better, de depending on the day, it feels like. Um, you know, when I started out, Twitter didn't exist. Um, Instagram didn't exist. I think Facebook did, but I wasn't allowed to use it because I was old and out of school. Uh, so so um, a lot of things that are you know, daily tools of news, uh, of news journalists and journalists now uh, did not exist. Uh, what did exist was blogs. Uh, that was sort of the new technology when I came to DC, when I started doing this. And I saw it as something that was capable of breaking news a little faster, was capable of um, sort of uh, synthesizing information quickly. Uh, but of course, all the social media uh, tools because they're fast, because they do things quickly, have a downside that you can do things a little too quickly, a little too fast and loose, right? And I think we see that um, occasionally on social media these days. Um, so, but I think what, what was an advantage for me and what I always tell young people coming into the industry is that knowing what those new technologies were and sort of how to at least dip my toes in and try them uh, was a real advantage for me in my career because there were people who hadn't thought about blogs or Twitter or what, or whatever it was that was coming around. And I felt free as a young person say like, well, I'm going to give this a shot. Uh, and I was lucky in my career that a lot of people either didn't understand what I was doing or didn't care enough to be like, to stop me. And so 
I just got to try a bunch of new things, such as a YouTube show when I, you know, it was like very early YouTube days. Um, and I, you know, did such fascinating and important news work as dressing up peeps for a weekly newscast. So that was a thing that I did, but it turns out that that was good for my career. So you never know um, what, what is going to work, especially in the world of the internet. Um, but you know, it has its downsides, uh, that you can speak too quickly, that you can, um, publicize your take before you've had a much time to contemplate your take. Right. And so I think there's danger in that, uh, for journalists and for everyone, frankly, one of the reasons that I work on free speech issues so much is because I feel like we have reached a point where every person with a Twitter account or a Facebook account is treated like a public figure. And that makes it very hard for people to speak freely um, because of the consequences that may come with that. Um, and it's something that I'm that is incentivized by social media and that I hope we can learn to grapple with uh, in the future. But yeah, there's there's been many changes uh, since I came through. And like, not least of which is the fact that community newspapers were thriving when I came out of school. And obviously that is not the case anymore. And I think a, a genuine loss for many people. Moving into how you cover politics today, how do you think your background that we just talked about influenced your views on the free speech issue? Um, I think I, because I came up in a, a sort of, I didn't come in a, up in a political family. I came up in a news junkie family. So that's, there's a, there's a difference. And honestly, it's, it's a little, maybe that's a thing that has changed because um, pretty much every news junkie you meet these days is also explicitly political. Uh, back when I, when I grew up, that wasn't necessarily the case. Uh, and, you know, we didn't, we didn't talk politics very much. So I think my education coming up with my family was more of a, you know, basic first amendment, first principles, this is what matters, uh, to us. And this, and, and hopefully in, in the case of free speech and freedom of the press, this is a universal value that's really important to our society. Um, and then I also happen to be just, this is the way I'm made. Uh, I'm a, I'm like a natural contrarian. I always was. I grew up in a very liberal town and I just wanted to ask questions about like, well, why do we think these things? Why does everyone think these things? Why does everyone agree on this? Um, I have a tendency to sort of needle people on things like that. And as a result, uh, I have had so many conversations my entire life with people who think completely differently than I do. I have best friends who think completely differently than I do and who believe things uh, that I do not. And it has enriched my life so much um, that I, part of my work is to convince people that this can really be fun and rewarding um, because too often we convince ourselves that it's going to be horrible and you're going to get canceled. And, um, and I would like us to move toward the idea of not just free speech as government not intervening, but free speech is something that we want to encourage um, more and more and more discussion, more debate, uh, and that people feel comfortable doing that and prepared to do that. Um, and so that's, that's I think, I've, my own contrarian nature pl plus a backbone of, uh, of newspaper indoctrination is the, the, combination, <laughs> the combination of those two things made me a free speech fanatic. Can you walk us through how you ended up as the moderator for the 2016 Republican primary debate? Yeah, so I, uh, it was a strange year for me. Um, in 2015, uh, it was, let's see, um, so the summer of that year, the primaries are going on. Everybody's sort of realizing, like, is this Donald Trump thing real? I remember he came down the escalator in June. That was the beginning. Um, I had just published a book called End of Discussion, available in 
bookstores near you and on amazon.com uh, that, and we were on a, we were on a book tour. So we're sort of contemplating this all summer. And then uh, in the fall in September, um, something unexpected happened, which is I was pregnant with my second child. I had a two-year-old at home uh, and my husband was in a, a bike race um, and died in a cycling accident uh, on a Saturday in September. Um, so I, from that point on, as you might imagine, was not paying that much attention to the primary. <laughs> so I sort of spent uh, a couple months putting my life back together such that it was, um, really going through, you know, the toughest time in my life. And then, oh, by the way, uh, two months later, I had a baby. So I had a newborn two months after my husband died. Um, and then a month and a half, two months after that, ABC asked, do you want to moderate this debate? And I, I got the email and I thought to myself, can I just ignore that I got this email? Like, maybe this isn't my time. I feel like I've, I've got a lot going on as a newborn baby rests on my <laughs> shoulder. I've got a lot going on. Um, I'm not sure that I'm totally sane right now, although who in politics is. Uh, and I don't know that I can actually do this. So maybe I'll just ignore this opportunity and move on and pretend I didn't see it. And I told one friend, my co-author, uh, Guy Benson and best friend, um, who wrote the book with me and, uh, is at Fox news. I told him that I had gotten this email and he was like, Oh, you're absolutely doing this. We're going to start training now. Um, so he and I and some other friends sort of workshopped things and, and, and put some questions together. Uh, I do, I do not envy any moderator. It is a very tough job. Uh, I obviously at times have criticisms of the way that moderators do things, but I empathize with the whole project because it's very difficult to know what is going to come at you, how questions are going to go, who might have an exchange at this time, it was February of 2016. There were nine GOP candidates on the stage, including Donald Trump, who, as you may have noticed, is a bit of a wild card on the debate stage. <laughs> so um, ABC, I thought was very generous, gave me four, I feel like four or five questions as part of the moderating gang. There were three or four of us up there. Um, and, uh, and lo and behold, my mom came to take care of the newborn, uh, who apparently screamed the entire debate, but I couldn't hear her. She was in the basement. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> and I moderated the debate, got decent reviews. Um, and I was in between jobs. I had, uh, my contract with Fox had run out earlier that year. And after I, uh, acquitted myself decently on the stage, I had, uh, several people, asking if I could work for them the next day. So that was a great uh, outcome for me. That's how I ended up at CNN. Uh, and it really, to this day, is probably probably my, my best uh, career moment, I would say, just because it combined this very, very tough time. It was such a whirlwind. And it really, for me and for the public, sort of announced, I am going to live life. I'm going to work. Um, I can do this and I can do this on a very big stage. And that was really important to me. It was important for my kids to see it, even though, you know, they were like half sentient at the time, but now I can tell them about it. <laughs> and it, it really kicked off sort of the next chapter of my life. Um, but those four months were a hell of a four months. And now here we are, what, five, five years, five years later. And I have a 
thriving seven and almost five-year-old. She's four right now. That's great to hear. Such a cool story. Uh, moving to a more kind of specific policy issue, uh, what do you believe is the role of social media platforms in regulating free speech? For example, when it comes to controversies like QAnon on Facebook that we've recently seen, uh, and also even the recent uh, Hunter Biden New York Post article on Twitter, um, where do you draw the line about what to allow? Yeah, so this is really tricky for these platforms, right? And um, and first of all, let's just like acknowledge the thing that everyone lectures everyone about. Yes, this is not government taking away your speech, right? There are, there are other places to engage online. However, as a society, um, government not taking away your freedom of speech is the least we can do for free speech. There are things we can do to make it more friendly, to make it more robust. Um, and I think, look, on these platforms, obviously like abusive behavior, threats, um, really graphic, uh, terrible video elements and, and criminal stuff. Uh, that's basically a full-time job to take care of that. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, I, I get that there's a lot of pressure on this front, but I don't think it's a great idea to jump, to wade into deciding which political speech and which reporting is a-okay for consumption by Americans. I mean, especially when you've got a piece from a very old mainstream national newspaper, the New York Post, like feel free to argue that it's not sourced well enough. I've done that plenty of times with plenty of sources, including the New York Times, such as the New York Times, Washington Post, like how, and, but that's more speech, not less. You're arguing that this is not a great scoop and here are the reasons why. Um, Further, obviously, as you may have noticed this week, it made that story the most popular story in the whole world that they tried to keep people from consuming it. And it made people like me who care about this issue feel like I need to share it as my patriotic duty <laughs> to the First Amendment. Like, like if you tell me I can't share the thing, I, it's dubious. That's what you think. Great. I'm going to share it anyway. Because like, you can't tell me not to share it. Um, so I think, look, they're going to get into all sorts of scrapes doing this because the rules are such that um, they can be applied selectively. Uh, again, that's another thing that erodes credibility and public trust is frankly something we don't have a ton of right now. Uh, and it, it does not improve our discourse. So I think um, it's a really tricky road to go down. And one that I think uh, at times in, in fits, like an organization like Facebook has resisted doing, cause they want to say like, we're a platform and we really don't want to get into refing this stuff. And I think it's a bad road further. When you go down, when you do something dumb, as I think this, this crackdown on this Hunter Biden story was, um, it was so aggressive. It was so blatant. When you do that, guess who comes along? Oh, the government has a solution for this, right? And so I think when you uh, when you incentivize that, um, I don't think you're going to get great outcomes with more regulation. Uh, so I, look, I don't I don't have all the answers, but I am fairly certain the answer is not shutting down national newspaper stories on the re on a regular basis. Um, because by the way, if they do that to a national newspaper, what are they doing to individuals who have no um, ability to, to yell about this and have, uh, in the old, in, in the old days saying less, less ink, uh, by the barrel than a newspaper does. Um, so I think it's, I think it's really problematic. Obviously there's a sliding scale of what's reliable and what's not, but some of that 
sorry, everybody, has to be our responsibility to sort through. And I think that's a healthier way. Speaking a bit more on the topic of speech in our current society, what problems do you see with the current state of national discourse? And what steps do you think we can take to alleviate them as a society? Oh, there are so many. (laughs) There's so many problems. Um, So one of the things that I talk about uh, on college campuses when I, when I talk about speech is like, I think we prevent ourselves from, uh, from having real conversations when we think about it to macro level. Um, Truthfully, what actually makes discourse better is that you have a friend who disagrees with you on an issue and you have a conversation about it, right? It is slow, hard work. Uh, and I do it when, I, when I go to college campuses on several campuses, and I, I don't think I'm shading anybody buddy by saying this, I show up and they're like, Oh, it's this right wing chick. I'm definitely going to hate her and everything she believes. And it turns out, no, after a couple days of chatting, we have disagreements, but I agree with students often more than they think I will. Um, we disagree in really interesting ways, uh, that are not abusive or hurtful. They're just conversations. And so I, I think that makes progress in discourse because both I, I get rid of some of my assumptions about college students, right. And they maybe get rid of some of their assumptions about me. And that's how people get closer together. Um, those conversations are really rich and important and yes, sometimes challenging. Uh, but where do, I mean, this is one of the things that concerns me about, uh, sort of people feeling like they need to self-censor so much is college is where those conversations should happen. Like you run into a ton of people who come from different backgrounds from you and you say like, Hey, uh, what do we have in common and what do we not? Uh, that, that is actually how you learn. Uh, and I think, you know, my co-author guy, um, who I mentioned earlier, he went into college, a very sort of, uh, like stalwart, uh, paint by numbers conservative. Like I'm check, check, check all the boxes, all the issues. And he, has changed his mind on plenty of issues. And part of the reason he has and moved further left or moved friends further right or more libertarian is because of these messy conversations that would happen in dorm rooms. Those conversations are actually what bring people together and what change minds. And if you can't have them, um, then we will not be solving societal problems, right? Uh, So I think this is a very, very micro answer to a large question, but I do think what, what I encourage people to do when I talk to to young people is look, take 20 minutes to have a conversation with a friend on an issue that's maybe not explosive, but one that you just disagree on and say, we're going to chat for 20 minutes and I'm not going to assume any bad motives on your part. I'm not going to assume that you're a socialist who wants to take away all my private property. I'm not going to assume you're a crazy person who doesn't care about anybody who's not rich, right? That's, there we go. Um, have a conversation for 20 minutes in which you do not impugn each other's motives. Um, and that is just like one small step towards having decent conversations. Um, it's tricky. Like it, it, it requires, um, sort of fighting your tribalist instincts, which are sort of, that's part of who we all are. Like I have a team, I'm sticking up for my team. Um, and it's sort of part of your identity and fighting those instincts can be really rewarding and you can get to a place where we actually do have better conversations. Um, and the more people do it in small, small ways, the better it gets everywhere. Except for maybe not Twitter because Twitter, it's really hard to have a nice conversation. Eh. (laughs) 
So our last question before we jump into our lightning round is, uh, as a journalist with a national audience, you have an incredibly busy schedule. Obviously, we've discussed that a lot today. How do you balance your work life and your personal life? Um, so this is something that I, I kind of had to learn the hard way. I think I'm a naturally sort of easygoing person. Um, perhaps my career has paid the price for that at times. Like I, I'm not as much of a gunner as, uh, as other people are. Um, but it's because the rest of my life is really important to me. And I kind of, uh, steered, attempted to steer my career in a direction where I could have a fairly flexible schedule, um, so that I could spend a lot of time with my kids. Um, I didn't know what that looked like before I had kids, but I am thankful for past me who sort of made some of that happen. Um, and then I think I had to learn the hard way after my husband died. I was single mom at home with two kids, um, one brand new, and I just had to do what had to be done. And sometimes that meant that I wasn't writing a ton or I wasn't on radio or a ton, or I was just occasionally on TV. And, you know, that, that will um, change your perspective fairly quickly. And I just knew that they were, they were top of the list. And then we would get to the other things afterwards. Um, and as long as I was making a living and providing, um, and setting a good example, then I felt good about that. Uh, but yeah, I, I do tell people, you know, there, when you move into a career, like, like it's at times, depending on the economy, it's just a blessing to have a job, right? You do, you do what you, as you move through your career, you can make value decisions about what is important to you. For instance, I've certainly taken flexibility over money at times, right? Um, and you make those decisions as you, as you go along and it ain't going to be perfect all the time. Um, but I do think having a very clear vision of what's important to you is part of building that life. Um, and these days, I think, especially post post COVID, it's one of, one of the weird things that will come out of this huge societal upheaval is that there will be more flexibility. There will be more willingness to listen at many different kinds of businesses to what you might need and how you could put together a schedule in an unconventional way so that you can help your, your family and your, your other life. So. That's awesome. Great advice. Uh, so lastly, we have our lightning round, which is just three quick questions, three quick answers. Um, the first one today is if you could get dinner with one or two historical figures alive today or not, who would it be? Um, let's see. Okay, this is going to be weird. I, Dolly Parton and Booker T. Washington. What is a favorite book of yours or a recommendation to listeners? A favorite book of mine. Um, I like a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go cable news pundit on you and not give you a straight answer. I like a lot of historical fiction. Okay, well, I will tell you, my favorite book of all time is The Killer Angels, which is historical fiction about the Gettysburg, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, and it's amazing. Um, so The Killer Angels. Um a little more, a little more like uh, sensational uh, historical fiction is Devil in the White City, which is about uh, the the World's Fair in Chicago, but also a serial killer that was there at that time. So um, enjoy that. That's a good October read, everybody. Um, what else? Uh, I like a lot of Southern writers. So that's I'm I'm from North Carolina. Uh, you know, went to school in Georgia. So Flannery O'Connor is a favorite. But yeah. Oh, my Southern writers and, and, uh, and some creepy stuff and some, some good old history. <laughs> Last question. What has been your favorite quarantine hobby? Let's see. Um, so I have done a little bit of, 
again, I'm going to give you like three answers. Uh, I've done a little bit of DIY and, um, I'm newly, I'm newly married as of March. So I, I remarried in March. Um, which was fun because it was the last week before shutdown. Uh, so we had a wedding and then we came home and then we were locked in a house with the children 24 seven. So it's been quite a honeymoon period. So my husband and I have had to learn to DIY all these, all these house projects together, which has been a learning curve. Um, <laughs> it's like boot camp for marriage. Um, but I keep wanting to do stuff to the house cause I'm in the house all the time. So that's one thing I've done. I built some floating shelves. They look lovely. Um, I, I work out to keep myself sane. So the Peloton has been nice. Uh, you know, my husband bought that right before Christmas and I was like, you're crazy. We're never going to use that. <laughs> I was wrong. Um, and yeah, I think that's about it. That's, that's super basic. Sorry, everybody. I'm so basic. Just putting up shelves and working out. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us this week, MK. Yeah. Glad to be here. I had a blast. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. If you want to hear more from MK Ham, make sure you register for her GE Politics discussion group, Free Speech is a Social Justice Value, on Thursdays from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time over Zoom. Find all of her information in the GE Politics newsletter or Google GE Politics discussion group. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you follow us on social media at flyonthewallpod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. As always, you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.